Good evening, everyone. Welcome. Welcome. I'm Mary Wood for the San Francisco Ballet Center for Dance Education. I'm delighted to welcome those of you who are here in the green room of the Veterans Building here in San Francisco. And of course, to welcome those who might be joining us at a later time via podcast through our internet. These points of view programs we present during the season produced by the Center for Dance Education. And of course, these programs along with the Meet the Artist interviews that I know some of you attend, which occur an hour before curtain time at selected performances, are also produced by Center for Dance Education and are also recorded for future podcast. The Center for Dance Education is directed by Charles Chip McNeil, who also runs the amazing Dance in Schools and Community program. And our adult education programs that inc include the annual Ballet 101, which was another sellout this year. Keep your eyes open for that next year. Those things are administered by adult education coordinator, Cecilia B. Um, this evening, we will be focusing on program two. And before we actually get underway, I do want to remind you that listening, uh, hearing assistance devices are available in the back. If anyone would like to uh, take advantage of that offering, um, just see our volunteers and staff at the back. So this evening, we are looking at program two, which is a mixed bill of three very contemporary works. Although these three pieces were all choreographed within the last six years, they couldn't be more different. And I know it will be the opportunity for some lively discussion. We will be focusing, of course, on the world premiere of Mark Morris's ballet, Bow. And I'm very delighted that my guests for the evening will all be able to speak very um, authoritatively and passionately about Mark Morris, about his work, and about the other pieces on the program. So at this time, I'd like to ask Betsy and Megan and Gennady to join me. So I think you are going to have to share. I'm sorry about That's that. <laughs> well, it's a real pleasure to introduce. I'm going to start with, um, let's start with Betsy Erickson, who is a member of the San Francisco Ballet staff. Betsy has um, been a member of the San Francisco Ballet family for a very long <laughs> time. Thank you. <laughs> Betsy started as a dancer in the company, in fact, as a Ford Foundation scholarship student which I don't think I knew, in 1964. Uh, I think it was before that, actually. <laughs> when I was in the school, I had the Ford Foundation Scholarship, which was one of the first Ford Foundation scholarships. So it was, I joined the company in 64. Okay. So it was prior to that that I had a scholarship to the school. 
And then she took some time to go to American Ballet Theater, where she danced as a soloist, and then returned to San Francisco Ballet and retired in 80... 1984. Yep. And then moved on to the world of being a ballet mistress at the Oakland Ballet. Um, you have been a ballet mistress, a choreographer, and an artistic director, as well as a dancer. That's right. <laughs> and a ballet mistress. That's right. <laughs> and for many, many years, you have been the local tender of the Mark Morris repertoire. That's right, yeah. So thank you so much for joining us tonight. You're welcome. And um, Gennady Nedgevin deserves Nedgevin. Nedgevin. I practice saying it over and over and over, and then I say it it's wrong. It's okay. I'm used to hear it different ways. <laughs> <laughs> um, Gennady has been a dancer with San Francisco Ballet for uh, a long time. This is my 14th season with the company. Be sure you speak. Uh, 14th season. Um, joined as a soloist and were promoted to principal dancer and have danced virtually every principal part that I could list. A lot of them, yes. Um, interesting that you um, were trained in Moscow at the Bolshoi, but then you came to the West via Le Jeune Ballet. I'm yes, I worked in France for, for a year um, uh, with a company called Jean Ballet de France. Uh, it's not exist anymore, but uh, that company was kind of gathering uh, new, young, talented dancers from around the world and kind of giving them a little push to achieve something much bigger than elsewhere they would or mm -hmm. something. So. And you were, um, were you talent spotted by Helgi or did you have your sights set on San Francisco Ballet? No, we actually collaborated in performance um, showcase for San Francisco Ballet School. So That's Jean Ballet de France came here and we did different works, new uh, creations. Actually, Ricardo Bustamante choreographed uh, uh, a ballet for us and used this mm -hmm. mixed casting from different company, like our mm -hmm. company and company, our company now here. <laughs> I'm, sp I'm speaking for both companies now, I guess. Um, so that's how Helgi saw me, and mm -hmm. he asked me to join the company. Oh, we're glad he I did. I didn't think long. No. <laughs> oh it God. happened right there. I signed the contract right there after the show. <laughs> Done. <laughs> well, we're glad that happened. Um, one other thing that's listed in your bio that I think uh, we might have forgotten. In 1999, uh, the Eric Brun Prize which is pretty prestigious in the dance world. Um, you and... Me and Vanessa Zahorin, uh, we went there. It, was, it wasn't planned uh, because usually that competition includes companies where Eric Brun uh, worked, uh, like Royal Danish Ballet, um, ABT. Uh, Toronto, of course, yeah. Yeah. And you, you direct few, few others, yes. And um, I guess they were they didn't have enough people, and they asked Helgi if he would have a, a couple to send to the competition, because Eric Burns, I guess, came here to dance. Yes, and he he actually taught the company for quite a while. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Thank you. And that's how we ended up going there, and we both um, got the prize. And we had two weeks to prepare, and we just throw bits and pieces, and 
we did, um, it was after Nutcracker, so Nutcracker was pretty much ready. We didn't have to prepare much, so we rehearsed a little bit and we went to do it. And we did Helgi's uh, two bits, which we had to like really learn and prepare in two weeks. And it worked out well. It did, it worked out well. Well, and then I'm very pleased that we have Megan Williams. Megan is um, the associate, the uh, repetitor for Mark Morris. And your bio says you've danced with the Mark Morris Dance Group for 10 years, creating numerous roles while you were with the company. You've served as his assistant on many projects. You've staged many of his works. Um, you are a guest teacher with the Mark Morris Dance Center and teach at uh, the Conservatory of Dance at SUNY Purchase. So you have also the career of dancer and director and ballet master and teacher. And yes. Thank you so much for being with us. It's my pleasure. Yeah, Mark went home this morning, sadly, wow. so I'm here to watch the next cast um, do the ballet. So. We, we actually call the two different casts. The one that performed last night was called This, and the one that's performing tonight is called That. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to see that cast. You're going to yes. see that cast, and if you came last night, you saw this cast, which is confusing. But Well, and I know there's quite a convention that Mark has of naming his casts so that it will never, ever be called a first It's not one and two cast. or A and B. No, it has to be something else. There is yeah. one of There was one that was artistic and... What was it? Intelligent and artistic? No. Oh, technical, technical and artistic. That's what it was. <laughs> one was technical. One year, it seems to me there was a Jason and a Jeremy yeah, or something. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, before we actually get into Excuse the... Me. That's artistic and technical. <laughs> that's what we got for the last ballet. We did it. Oh, Keychain. that's fabulous. <laughs> On both sides, artistic and technical. Yeah, th there's a tradition of opening night presents, and that was the gift that year. Well, before we really um, concentrate on Mark's piece, Bo, uh, there were a couple of other fairly entertaining pieces on the program. And I want to um, start by just talking about Chroma, which is, uh, was a San Francisco ballet premiere a year ago, choreographed by Wayne McGregor, who um, co created the piece in 2006. It won the 2007 Laurence Olivier Award for Best Dance Production. This is a British award. And a 2007 Critics Circle Award. And that was what landed McGregor, uh, who had founded and was directing his own company, Wayne McGregor Random Dance. Interesting title. Um, a position as the resident choreographer for the Royal Ballet of England. And those of us who um, grew up with the old royal ballet. Um, I just think it's fascinating that the choreographer of works like Eden Eden and Chroma has become the resident choreographer of a, of a company that held the ancient classical tradition so dear for so long. So those of you who have not yet seen Chroma, you'll understand. Those of you who have, you know what I mean. Um, Let's look at some images from the piece. Um, it was designed by an architect, John Pawson, and there's a description of his designs as reductive and minimal. His buildings are incredibly serene, 
he builds amazing plain canvases on which anything can happen. So those of you who have, are experienced in looking at Chroma, does that resonate? Uh, well, the, the set was created by that the architect <laughs> as sort of environment for <laughs> McGregor to plant these these beings. I sort of think of yeah. them almost yeah. not even yeah. as people yeah. in a way. Yeah. Um, that picture being a good example. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> there's an animal quality to the mm -hmm. to the piece. Um, Chroma has a number of meanings, and one of them is freedom from white, which I think is fascinating. Um, it's in the program notes. And what, what is so fascinating is that the only color in this piece is in the light, and even that is just shades of white. And if you look, um, go back, the dancers are all wearing slightly different colored garments, but they really are just shades of white. And I have a video clip that will sort of illustrate both the design look of this and the extraordinary movement and this architectural frame. We're looking at Yuan Yuan Tan and uh, Taras Dimitra. actually says the eye is tricked into thinking there's much more color than there actually is. one of the things that we've learned about McGregor is he was not trained in ballet at all. And then as a young adult, was exposed to it and to dance and has now, I think, absorbed it. I think there's, he clearly knows how to use a ballet trained dancer to do movement that's just very unusual. Well, I think his own company is not a ballet company. Uh -huh. So when he had the opportunity to start working with bodies that had a different range and a different ability to articulate, he went for it completely. Because <laughs> you see how they're manipulated. I mean, you'll see it when you see the whole dance. I mean, it's quite astonishing what he has them do. Um, uh, I heard an interesting thing. I was speaking with one of the principals, um, Teet Helimetz, last night, and he said that the frame in the back, he said an opinion he had, is that you sometimes feel as though you're on the outside looking in and sometimes that you're on the inside looking out. And I wonder if you think about that when you see the piece. Another comment is about the music, which is uh, the British composer Joby Talbot who actually adapted um, some songs by the group White Stripes. 
and, and also some of his own composition. Um, both violent and very, very percussive, says McGregor, or lyrical and beautiful and sensitive, and we saw that. So that's, that's one piece on the program. And then we, um, the program is bookended by the ballet number nine, choreographed as a world premiere for our company last year by Christopher Wilden to a score called Ash by Michael Torkey. And what could be more different? Uh, this is more balletic. The dancer, the women are on point. And there's certainly a lot of color. One of the most striking things about the piece is the color. And Gennady, uh, <clears throat> you appear in uh, number nine, one yes. of the casts of number nine. And I wonder if you would just talk very briefly about the the way it is to have a Christopher have Christopher Wilden create a work on you compared to, let's say, Mark Morris. Um, well, that's hard to compare choreographers in a way because they're all different though we're going to, towards the same goal to make a ballet, mm -hmm. <laughs> create a ballet. Um, well, Christopher was, didn't have much time to create this ballet. It's, mm -hmm. it's a short ballet, but it required more time actually eventually than uh, we thought so, because it was so precise, so fast. Um, and he was working really, really quickly uh, separately, we, when we start working on new ballets, we, we work separate um, uh, couples, and then we put it all together with, for the ballet and stuff. So when we were creating it, it was going really well, but when we start putting it together, it was really, really hard to keep it intact, because it had to be so precise and very fast, all these movements were, if you're not doing it at the right time, on the right count, on the, the right rhythm of the, of the movement, then everything just falls apart. And that was the hardest uh, thing to deal with in a way. At the end, when we were preparing to, to stage it, put it on stage, that's when we hit the hardest time of creating this ballet. <laughs> so, yeah. Some of these, these images are, um, there are, there's ensemble who are in the brilliant yellow, and then the four solo couples in these bright colors. I don't know if I have another. And I do have a video clip. I think the video clip will illustrate what you're talking about because it shows the interaction of the core and the soloists. One of the comments that um, Christopher Wilden said himself is, there's no deep psychological meaning. It's just getting a sense of the kind of dynamic that the music has and then turning that into a dance. This is a full throttle dance with some pretty full throttle music. That's exactly what I'm talking right. about. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I can see. Thank you. 
Got a, that was fun to be able to see that. It was sort of an accident, but I'm glad it worked out that way. Um, yes, if only you jumped you higher. It, yeah, I think you should jump all. higher. I think a little higher would be good. Yeah, yeah. Megan says, if only he jumped higher. <laughs> only you could make your double cabriole beats cleaner. Um, I was intrigued that, and I wonder if the people who were putting this program together were thinking about the fact that the first piece is all about white and this piece was really designed all about color. And I had the good fortune to speak with Holly Hines, who was the costume designer last year. She said she worked very closely with the lighting designer, Mary Louise Geiger, and they, they just played with color. The color of the costumes as they would be dyed in the costume shop and then how the light would affect them and change the color of the costumes and the mood of each movement, short movement. But that was, they, they definitely took fabric swatches, apparently dressed members of the costume crew and put them on stage and played with the lights in order to get that effect. And it's just extraordinary. Well, moving on. I, I would love to not give away what Mark's costumes are. I don't know if we're going to be able to get away with that. We have some nice pictures. Oh, darn it. Okay. I just wanted you to be surprised when the curtain went up. Are you going to show pictures from last night? Yes. Oh, all right. <laughs> if you'll let us do that. <laughs> we, did, we didn't know there was going to be a condition. Okay. Uh, we get quite a round of applause when the curtain yeah, the, went up. Last yes. night the last audience night, was yeah. surprised. Well, so. when the, yeah, that's, we don't have that scene, so that will be but it's, a surprise. It's still quite a striking visual. Yeah. <laughs> well, so here we are. We're talking about the ballet bow. I'd like to know how the name came about. Should we start with that? Sure. Um, I mean, Mark has made, this is his eighth ballet with the, with the company, and um, he had an idea. He had, he had recently made a dance on his own company, the Mark Morris Dance Group, that was all women, and he'd never made a piece for just the women in the company. There had been sections in other dances that had all women. And he had this idea that he wanted to only work with men here at San Francisco Ballet um, just to see what would happen. And, yeah, and, and a lot happened. I think it was really interesting sort of passage for, for the men themselves. The very first day Mark had them in the room, he was very quick to say, this is not a contest. This is not about aggression. He wanted to remove all of those m maybe typical male dancers on stage with each other ideas and make it just about men dancing together. And I think as, you know, he doesn't come up with titles first. I think they evolve as he's working with, with the dancers. And bow has a little bit of double meaning because it's the plural of the word beautiful, but it also means boyfriends, and it also means beautiful male things. It means a lot of things. Um, it's guys, and it's a beautiful dance. That's kind of what he said to me. That's why, that's where the title comes from. I don't think it's any more esoteric than that. But it has some mix. And the music is by um, Brohislav Martinu, and he thought Bro, Bo, he was thinking of sort of like things that popped out of that name, too, of the composer. I also Googled Bo, and it said uh, men 
fancy dressed. Fancy, yes, fancy dressed men from like another time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Kind of who's really, really yeah. paying attention how he dresses. D yes. Yeah. Kind of, kind of. That fits too. Idea, that fits too. Yeah. Well, we can. I'm going to just do this. Okay. Okay. Um, now you know. It's so well, but that still doesn't give away that <laughs> wonderful first first image. Um, so the choice of the music um, is fascinating because all of a sudden we're listening to an instrument that we don't often hear in this day and age. Martineau, I believe, composed this music in the mid twentieth century. Nineteen thirty-five. Early twentieth yeah. century, and uh, the music is a harpsichord, and uh, but it's played in a contemporary way, not in the way it would be played in the 18th century. Well, it's played in the early 20th century way, yeah. which is a, a modernist harpsichord mm -hmm. piece. Mm -hmm. And it's a, if, if you read the, the program notes, are actually really, really describe mm -hmm. very well, marks the appeal of a, this kind of bigger, heavier sounding harpsichord that you don't hear in Baroque music that's kind of delicate and petite sounding. And this is a little more aggressive sounding. Um, Use of the use of the instrument, and there's a piano played as well. So there's this sort of interesting marriage of the harpsichord and the piano that Mark really really likes. So, choosing music is always interesting when we're talking about a new work and about a choreographer's different style. Um, and Mark is very well renowned for being a musician. I'm just sort of curious to know how he picked this. Was this something sitting on a shelf that he was just dying um, for the chance to pull it out? Or, To be honest, I think he, he wanted to bring a different flavor to the pit of the San Francisco Ballet. He just, he, he had an, that was an idea. He's, he's worked here a lot, and he just wanted a different sound to come out of the pit. <laughs> it was kind of that specific, so he hunted around. It wasn't like he had this, he, it's not a composer he's used before. And usually when he makes work on his own company, he sits, he does sit with music on the shelf. He listens to it for years before he feels, I mean, he's been quoted as saying, before I feel worthy to make a dance on that, to that piece of music. It's never random for him. He doesn't say, oh, I want to make a piece for nine men and I need something kind of like this. No, he doesn't do that. The music is, is much more important to him than that. So... Gennady, in dancing, you have been in any number of Marx pieces. And, yes, um, I've done pretty much all works all that you've done for San Francisco Ballet. Um, and I know you're also a very musical dancer. I believe you play a musical instrument, don't you? Play piano? I don't. <laughs> I, I, I dreamed it. I used, I just, I used to, I, when I was seven years old, I played accordion. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. Don't ask me to do it now. No way. Oh, but now actually, I you know probably this. won't be able to find it in San Francisco. When I went to musical stores, you know, sometimes you get an idea. Why don't I remember, like, re relearn myself how to play accordion? I went to a couple of stores just to see, you know, okay, <laughs> would it worth it spending that much money? Or I couldn't find that accordion. <laughs> I haven't seen any store. Maybe like you have to find like. Special, special, like, uh, I, we'll, we'll have to talk. Um, Craig, okay. Craigslist, so, nevertheless, find an accordion. back to the point that you are a very musical dancer. Um, I would love to hear some of your reflections about working um, in the learning of a new piece, a new Mark Morris ballet, and his, the way he 
invites you to be a musical performer? Um, well, yes, um, I'm, I was always aware how Mark is really, um, how musical his ballads are and how much attention he pays to music and he, uh, his choreography derives from music, just literally. Like, um, I was actually thinking about the moment when we were working on Bo, um, the moment when there's a train, he called it the train, the boy is coming out. And he was making everyone do different step in different uh, rhythm. And afterwards he stopped everyone and said, just listen to the music, listen to left hand of the, on the piano. And Michael, our uh, pianist, played it left hand, then he played the right hand. And you could hear these different rhythms in each hand. And then he said, okay, now do the step. And all of a sudden the step came together because Sometimes when you listen to music, you see, you hear like the higher notes, like one, you know, like guitar, or you don't hear the drum as much. You, you, don't, you just don't pay attention at the whole thing right away. But when we listen to each of them, each of this instrument or each of this like hand literally here, we could hear the whole thing together. And then it really, really made sense and it got so clear to us. It was just saying fascinating to, to understand that he hears it all, every note, and it comes into each step. So you have to be, in a way, prepare yourself to, in a way, relax, but be able to see, to hear all the music and see it in, in the steps. You will find that every note, every step would match. It's, it's, that's an amazing thing. Betsy, if I could ask you, you are the sort of keeper of the Mark Morris ballets in our repertoire. You have had the experience of having to teach one of the works that's being revived. How do you teach, let's say, a new room full of dancers that's that magical musical connection? I try to teach it the same way, actually. Uh, and we always have a pianist working with us and um, I tried to get the dancers to understand what it is that Mark was listening to and how he would interpret the music. I mean, I try to use the same process because it's really the most uh, instructive and it gives you the most insight into the music. Um, it's something that occasionally we have to resort to kind of counting the music to, to be able to understand the length of a sequence or how long before something happens. Uh, most of the time, Mark doesn't count the music. He just, he hears it and you get used to the interval. But when I have to reteach it, oftentimes I, I will have to count it to have that kind of grid work to um, anchor the dancers on the musical phrase. Yeah, sure. Um, it, it's been really, interesting for me to work on this project with Betsy. It, we, we're the only two women in the room, for one thing. It's been pretty interesting. With two casts of men and some understudies, and Michael at the piano and Mark, and then Betsy and I. Um, but Bet, Betsy's at one table on one side of Mark. I'm at another table, and I'm getting up and dancing a lot and learning the material at the beginning. And Betsy's taking copious notes, really literally writing down every step 
right, left, from here, from there. And I'm writing sort of more broad stroke notes. And I also have a score that Mark has a score, but I have a score. And I'm putting notes in the score so that I can refer to the score when I need to talk to Michael. And when once we move into the theater and we're with the orchestra and Mark says, go fix that, tell them where to start that. And then Betsy and I look at each other and we flip through one or the other of our notes. And Betsy's amazing because she's been doing this for so many years. But there's a certain... Um, I don't know what the word is, but well, there's a notation, but there's a the, the keeping of the dance is is on multiple levels. It's her understanding of it, having seen Mark in the creative process, but it's also how she notates and kind of remembers it and embraces it, and it's so she's teaching it back to those people with the experience of having been in the room, like myself. Like if I were to set this piece on another company, I would have the similar kind of. Thing. If I were setting it not having been in the room when it was made, it would be a completely different experience. I mean, I had it, I'll just say one more thing. Mark made a piece called Maelstrom here many years back. I staged Maelstrom on the Boston Ballet, having not been part of the process of learning it. And it was very, very, very difficult. Even though I did it, I did it from video and I learned some stuff from Mark. But being in the room while it's being made and being sort of in Mark's head a little bit is how you can then, the oral tradition works. You know, then you can pass it on that way. One of the things I'm interested in, um, not unlike Wayne McGregor and Chroma, Mark's background is very eclectic. And I know he did study ballet, and I know he has spent a great deal of time with contemporary, more contemporary dance forms and folk dance. And I sat up suddenly last night because I saw some folk dance elements in this. And I wonder if any of the three of you would just speak about how, Gennady, you take your ballet body, and Betsy, your tradition is mostly ballet, although you've certainly had a broad experience. But um, how... Um, Mark's use of a ballet company, how does that influence the work that's going to come out given his training and background and experience? Is that enough? Is that a question? <laughs> I think there's always the element of folk dance in there. I, I always see folk dance in, in just about every work that Mark has done in, in some way or another. But there's also this wonderful human element that is just um, phenomenal that I think just comes from him naturally wanting to see human beings on stage and not something that is uh, a otherworldly kind of creature or just an abstract shape. I think he enjoys seeing and working with human beings and he wants direct eye contact and he wants to see the relationship between people um, as they're dancing and all of those elements are, are really important to Mark. Um, well, um, Mark's early, um, Mark was a flamenco dancer when he was nine. He got to go to Spain with his mother and study with Jose Greco when he was just a little kid. And then he went on to be in a Balkan folk dance company when he was 14. Like that was his first public performing experience. 
And then he started going to ballet class. And then he performed. He was in the Elliott Feld Ballet. He, I mean, he actually he's a, was a brilliant performer. I don't know if anybody had the opportunity to see him dance, but he was. And I, in the 10 years I was in the company, Mark was dancing in the company. So I was dancing with him, and that was very different than the, his current company, who there's a 20-year generation gap really now. You know, and I'm a, more a peer of his. But um, I, I'll just dovetail what Betsy was saying about you know, taking a ballet company and infusing this other, it's not really other, it's just more of the same, because ballet dancers interact and make eye contact and they're people on stage, but I think it, it, it's, Mark just has an approach that asks everybody to relax a little bit more. I mean, I think what's kind of brilliant about Helgi's programming in this evening is that this first piece, as I mentioned before, is full of this very intense energy and an almost animal-like, or I don't want to say abstract. I said this to the other day to the dancers before in their, our last rehearsal together. I said, it's not abstract because you're people doing it. Like, it can't be completely abstract because you're not robots. You know, you're actually humans. And I think Mark just adds an extra layer of that and give, gives the dancers in this company who are all so brilliant technically and have a, such incredible performance finesse a chance to just like calm down a little bit. I mean, maybe you can speak yeah, to that. Uh, just to compare Coma and, and Bo or Mark's works, um, I would say that Mark never really require us to do very complicated step, steps or steps that would make audience go, whoa, or something crazy, nothing like that. It's, he's more about simplicity of the movement of the, how it flows, how it, um, it's very, uh, I don't know how, it's like tonic water to <laughs> me, you know, com in, compared to uh, like alcoholic drink, escroma, <laughs> you know, that makes you booze. This one is just non-alcoholic, that's when you just to uh, soothe your thirst, you know, that's what Mark is, look like to me, his works look like. It's just a way to enjoy something without being uh, stirred and, yeah. and thrown out or something. Yeah. Well, I, I think when you watch, you know, Mark always has said too that if you watch real folk dancing on a stage, it gets kind of boring after a while. You're watching a lot of people's backs because everybody's dancing in a circle and it's not designed to be watched, it's designed to be done. You know, you get up and do it, like square dancing or, or lots of traditional folk dance. So he infuses that in there. There's, you'll see elements in the piece where their backs are to us not because they're making a statement, it's because they're dancing with each other upstage. You know, there, there's a, so we're kind of getting a chance to peek into that kind of world. And I think it feels very different as a performer to dance internally with the people on stage instead of always out, you know. And although his pieces have that too, as this one does too. These pictures uh, of the train that I was talking earlier, how every um, every person has different step, the rhythm of the step. So watch for it tonight. Uh, you'll you'll recognize the, it's in the it. Third section, right? Yes. One, two, three. Third, yes. No alcoholic drinks. Um, the, the movement 
you've, you've already alluded to, here we are, the circle. And the, the fact that one of the things that I noticed right at the very beginning of the piece last night is that there's very explicit interaction between the dancers that's almost um, acting. It's almost a, a script. It's, it's interacting. It's not acting. And there's even uh -huh. some of it that's slightly improvised. Mm -hmm. Like that there's things where the men watch each other dance and they're allowed to watch whenever they want to watch mm -hmm. or not watch if they don't want to watch, which is, it, it'll look choreographed, but it's, you're making choices about mm -hmm. that. Right, um, and in the beginning of uh, choreographing the ballet, Mark asked us to, to have those three gestures and that would say, uh, stay, come here, and go away. And <laughs> he said, you can do it the way you feel it. So everyone order. has a little bit different <laughs> gesture, and in, in any uh, In any order. In any order, yeah, yes. it's okay. yeah. I got Russian word in me. I can't <laughs> translate it now. Ooh, what's the Russian word for order? That would be good. But I was, I began to think of, um, Things that I've read about, for instance, the choreographer Jerome Robbins, it's said that every piece he ever did had a subtext of community. And so as I watched this last night, that jumped out at me, that this really was choreography steps, but that there was clearly a basic framework of the nine guys in some sort of community. Right. Um, Mark, uh, Mark was saying, just interact with each other. Mm -hmm look at each other while you're dancing. So it really, uh, just nine, nine guys just dancing together, that's all. I, and I, no one else is around. That's right, I think there's a component to this dance that also was an interesting shift for the men, which is that they are partnering each other in ways that, in Chroma you'll see men partner each other, but it's different than how, and I'll, I'll cite this again, I said this the other day, but one of the early rehearsals, Gennady said, I'm not used to being in front, because he's used to being behind the woman, and all of a sudden Vito was behind him, lifting him in a way that felt unfamiliar in terms of how you needed to focus and, right. can it you want to speak about that? Because it was, it was an interesting, oh. like, you know. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> Suddenly you're way <laughs> up in the air, you're right? up in the air in front of the, everyone, you're like, oh my God, and you don't have a ground, so. <laughs> Well, and one of my note, one of my notes is always, elevated. "Don't look down," like because the women in the company are so used to being aloft, and they so much trust when they're being put down because the men are so good at that. But the men were always going, going like this. Where's the floor? You know, and I'd say, "Just you have to trust." These are the same men that partner the women. They're, they're not going to plop you on the floor. That's right. You want to get landed as soon as possible. You want to get down as fast. I said, "No, enjoy being up there. This is your chance to be up there." And you'll see, there's a bunch of lifts like that. Yeah. yeah. But it, it was funny to switch the uh, the places with like uh, a partner or being partnered. So it, it's a new experience and helps you to understand how. Uh, my partner, a girl, would, would feel. We had to keep reminding the guys not to look, look down for the ground. They were looking, you know, for their landing, that they had to continue to look up, which is, it's scary, it's huh? scary. Well, partnering is about trusting to each other. And um, when there's a girl being part part partner, then she has to trust her partner to put her softly and nicely that she wouldn't get hurt. Right, right. 
here I was in her position and <laughs> well eventually you have to trust there's That's no right. other way otherwise you you, you look That's right. not right you know. and, and when you're choreographing a lift Mark has an idea he said I want it to look like this can you make that happen you know pick him up and do that's how that's how lifts come to be you don't just say do this kind of lift he has a he has a concept I want to see this man swinging and I want two men to make it happen to that other guy and doing that over and over again can be a little little, little painful you know so some men were like ow oh my god you know it's like well that's what the women go through on a daily basis having their <laughs> armpits wrenched up having their rib cages squeezed tight as tightly as possible and the guys were you know that were being lifted were you, you Gennady was very good he didn't complain that way but there were some other gentlemen <laughs> who were you know squirming and you know yeah so Mark would say okay put him down then pick him up pick up the one that's not going to complain so much but, but eventually, the lifts get ma are manifested. Mark sees the concept, and then they do it once in the dance, and it's not painful at all. You know, it kind of gets integrated into the dance. Before we open up um, to the audience for some questions, I have just have one more question about how um, Mark put it together, because you've mentioned that there are two full casts plus a few extras, which is just amazing. Um, not many companies in the world could you walk into and have 18 men plus extras. 18 really, really good men. Yeah, that, that could then pull this off. And I'm kind of curious to know just the inside story. How does Mark look at these men who are very tall? We have Vito who is incredibly tall middle-sized, shorter dancers, we have principal dancers, we have soloists, we have corps de ballet, and we have apprentices. How, um, just is it a design thing? How did he decide what group of nine men were going to be a cast? Well, I think that the first day that we arrived in October, we had an audition, and Mark made up some material, and he looked at, and he knew he knew he wanted Gennady. He knew he wanted certain people that he'd worked with before that could anchor the piece for him. Um, and he also knew he wanted the pieces constructed with three trios. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Trio A, Trio X, and Trio 2. <laughs> <laughs> right? And, and on, after he had picked a group of dancers out of the company that he wanted to work with, he divided them into these trios that more or less had a tall, medium, small, he kind of, he kind of did, he broke them up that way so that each trio. Yeah, had someone a little smaller. Someone a little smaller to, to be lifted. Yeah, exactly. And of course, because there's such a range in the company, there weren't going to be perfect, like three bears, you know, in each trio. But, but it's, that's more or less how he came to, how he grouped them. I was just, I was just frankly in awe that there were. <laughs> There were those nine guys out there just dancing their hearts out, and then there would be another nine tonight. Yep. Um, it's wonderful. Well, at this time, let's see if any of you would have questions for any of the three of them, or they can just jump in and make an answer. This hand went up, sure. Lovely question about the costumes and a little bit behind the design and well, the construction. Isaac Mizrahi designed the costumes and the, also the set piece, which is 
a large, I, it looks like a painting really, it's hanging in the middle of the scrim in the back that's the same, um, and it is a camouflage, and it's, it, it's a, fa a fabric that was produced, and so each one is slightly different because it's one big repeating pattern and they just cut them all out, so they're not designed to be um, identical, but as part of one wash of camouflage in these bright colors. I'm wondering where we would hide. Yeah. Well, I, th <laughs> in I such think camouflage. I, I think there yeah, exactly. He would hide in would the rainforest somewhere. Um, at, the, at the flower mart. I think initially the idea was to have the backdrop go from floor to ceiling, and be sort of one concept was that they would be able to blend into it, but then that cut changed, and the and the backdrop is actually a larger print version mm -hmm. as opposed to being the same dimensions as mm -hmm. if anybody's a Merce Cunningham fan here there's a beautiful piece that's a, a Robert Rauschenberg backdrop that's that and they have unitards that are the same and at certain points they, all you see is a head you know you don't even see them anymore yeah. and I thought it was going to be more like that when I heard it described but I think this is better and you'll see how Michael Chabowski beautifully lit the piece too so that the, the scrim behind the painting in the back changes color all the time and it's mm -hmm. beautiful and it changes the, the depth of the space in kind of amazing ways. Really different than the light design of Chroma and mm -hmm. Nine. I mean, the, they're, again, it's a, it's a really cool program that way because the space changes constantly. Your question. I think we, we may I, be I don't stuck. <laughs> <laughs> I think you have to write him a letter. Because I, 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 I read that in the program note as well, and it was, it was confusing to me. Maybe once you see the ballet, it might speak to you more. I don't know. I, I think I'm going to head for the OED and do a Well, or to speak to um, an artist who understands color, because chroma is a word in the vocabulary of painting oils and white is yeah right yeah Betsy say that into the mic here oh I, I think that white is all colors not an absence of color but all colors together and when you have I, I'd be curious to see the gel colors that are used for that um, because it does the lighting does change uh, and I'm sure that there's some color in there it's not just um, white, white. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. So, um, I don't know. <laughs> Someone back there. Yeah. She was making a comment about white being all color. In light, in light, but not in paint. Thank you. It's a very practical we question. We didn't have a scale. How, how much? Room. 
The question is, how much do these guys weigh that are being lifted? Mark went around and picked, picked up he the guys. Yeah. He made. <laughs> he, he said, come over here and pick up this guy. Because they were complaining about how heavy they were. He said, if Megan can pick you up, then you can. <laughs> You should be able to, no. I don't know. They're, they're athletes. They're in different sized people. So some of them are, it's about momentum. A lot of the lifts are about, and, and when you're being lifted, you have to participate. You can't just say, lift me. You're not, you're, not, you're not a dead weight. And a lot of the lifts come from a launching place, from a jumping place. And, and it's about coordinating timing, a lot of it is. It's not just about you know, pushing someone up over your head. Well, because there are, there are aesthetic lifts that, that are that way too, that are, I mean, you'll see in Chroma too, there's some incredible pressing lifts that the men do with the women, but the women are, are quite slender and small and light, yeah. Um, <laughs> Hi. Oh, wow, nice to see you too. New York. The question is about the process, and some choreographers walk into the room with um, a plan, and others with less of a plan, and so how does Mark walk into the room and begin to choreograph? Well, it goes back to him having listened to the music a lot. I think in a way he has a little bit of a sketch, you know, I would sort of equate it to a pencil sketch in his mind, but he hasn't really drawn any lines yet. He knew he wanted nine people, he knew he wanted trios. Other than that, you know, every time the rehearsal would end and we would go debrief, you know, have a glass of wine and debrief about it, he'd say, I did something today I totally didn't expect I was going to do, you know. Or he would look to me and Betsy and go, you know, is that, is that okay? You know, and, you know, because he, he likes to have support in the room. But he really does come in. He did that with us, too, with the dance group. He just made material right there in the studio. He never really had a game plan. I think once he gets going and he knows what his structure is starting to become, then he does take notes and he'll come in and say, I want to put this motif into this later thing. Then he starts to see it, it starts to unfold, I think, because he limits his vocabulary somewhat in every dance. It's not like every day he makes up a brand new set of steps. He starts to see what his, his lexicon is within the dance. Um, but the first day, he just started dancing around, you know. <laughs> yeah, there are stories in ballet history of choreographers um, who outlined every single step and every single floor plan. I think the old master Petipah is famous for doing that and would come into the room and just simply teach what had already been done in his head. There's choreographers right. that still work that mm -hmm. way. I think mm -hmm. it's an individual, very mm -hmm. individual thing. Um, we've got maybe one more question here.
interesting comment about um, men lifting men and referencing the Ballet Trocadero, which was the group of um, guys who actually took the parts of women. Right. So that's a little bit of a different it's dra emphasis. It's drag ballet, more or less. Right. I mean, they're great. They're still, they still exist. And right. yes. um, but, you know, dredge your minds in ballet history and try to think of times in which men were partnering men. Well, in modern dance, men partner men all the time. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, in, in the it characters, I guess, who would something like von Rothbard and Swan Lake. Uh, not that they were partnering, but they would be lifting in the act of fighting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, the same with perhaps Sleeping Beauty. Uh, I don't know. I mean, there are there are cases of that, but not throughout a whole ballet. It's kind of unusual. I think traditionally a pugilistic thing, men would lift each other when they were throwing mm -hmm, them across mm -hmm. the room. And that was, I think, why Mark made mm -hmm. that statement the first day, which was, this isn't going to be about fighting <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or competing yeah. with each other. Yeah, it's a very lyrical piece. And it's ten tender, too. Mm -hmm. I think it's mm -hmm. tender. Well, way. we've come to the end of our time, and I want to thank Megan and Betsy and Gennady so much for contributing to a wonderful discussion. And thank you all. We look forward We look forward to seeing you all next week when we will be talking about program 3 and my guest will include music director Martin West. And see you next week. Enjoy the performance.